Welcome, everybody, to our coverage of The Centerfold Girls, a violent, sleazy, and nihilistic drive-in classic. 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 That really deserves, uh, I think, a little bit of recognition amongst fans of this type of film, Mm -hmm. Degenerates one and all. Indeed. I'm Matt, by the way. (laughs) And I'm Jason. Yes. And we are collectively known as Terror Transmission, and we are here to pump Pump you you up. up. That was lame. That was exciting. (laughs) So we're treated right away to a a nice beach scene, day for night shooting here with a, a filter over the lens to make it look like it's evening or perhaps pre-dawn pre-twilight sure and we're also treated immediately to some bared bosoms i like the nipples are hard even though she's dead is that a thing it's a thing yeah yes yeah okay i i find it fascinating that uh she's been obviously she's been slashed in the throat here right but she's still has her panties on so she's comely she's what we're saying she still has her panties on which is uh so obviously there's no like actual post uh post-death violation so does that make the killer extra extra sick extra sick exactly that's that's what i was getting at because there's uh, there's no necrophilia or any of that so his asexuality makes him uh, even more alien and alien to to you know audience members i think Makes he, his crimes. He should be feared more. <laughs> exactly. He should. Makes you don't his know what you're going to get now spookier. that you know that. Mm-hmm. Right? But yeah, if I die, I want my nipples hard. <laughs> if that's a thing. So during a pre-production. It'd be nice during the whole uh, funeral. Right. Know? Right. right. Yeah. During uh, the, the beginnings of the, the genesis of this film was uh, Arthur Marks, the producer of this film, sent out questionnaires to East Coast drive-in owners. Um, East Coast United States, which is uh, a lot of his market that he was going to sell these films at. And he asked them, are you interested in having a film uh, which has a lot of violence, has a lot of nudity? And can you guess their answer? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, they were very enthusiastic about about <laughs> this idea. If you asked a, a room full of fifth graders that same question, <laughs> you get the same answer. Exactly. And aren't we all just fifth graders? Yes, we are. So the film cost around $181,000 to complete, which was very low budget. Mm-hmm. And the idea was that with less expenditure, you were more guaranteed to make your money back. And they did. The movie ended up turning a profit for the three investors and uh, it sold pretty well. They debuted the film on the East Coast of the United States at a lot of drive-ins and some grindhouse theaters. But it opened like New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts. And then eventually it was released nationwide. With back, what they would do with films like this, they would only cut a certain number of prints of the film, maybe five hundred, and they would dot them across the country. So it would begin in the eastern, northeastern United States, and then it would move throughout the United States, like so a virus, it, like a virus. <laughs> and over time, oh, maybe a year, maybe two years, it would eventually make it to all of the different drive-in areas uh, and different grindhouse theaters. And across. then there's all the bootlegging, but you don't want to know about that, <laughs> right? No. So here's Andrew Prine, who plays the the killer in the film. It was a very pristine uh, room here. Yeah, that was his idea. Was he wanted to have this really Spartan, sterile, white environment yeah. for him and his character to be in? Because it, the idea is that it's he's very, very uh, asexual and I, I don't know, anti life even. Mm-hmm. 
There's no warmth to his character. He's also, which I find really fascinating, the wardrobe that was that he chose for his character. It's a great addition because it's so out of date. It's out of date. It's by 20 years at this yeah. point. It's out of date. So it adds a dimension of antagonistic anachronism to his character. He's out of touch with the age of Aquarius free love generation and, and all of that that entailed, including female nudity and magazines, all of the sexual liberations. And obviously he has no interest in that whatsoever. He wants to punish them. I'm feeling a little antagonized by him right now. Yeah, no kidding. Just a little bit. And, you know, he himself, Andrew Prine, the actor, uh, was a nude pinup. He Get appeared. In a, he really appeared in a three-picture spread of photos in Viva magazine in May of '74. That's not a real magazine. Viva was. Uh, it was. It was Penthouse's answer to Playgirl. Playgirl was Playboys. You know, sure. Men yeah. nude. They play. They play. Right. Sure. And penthouse readers get pent up. Pent up. That's what they do. They get pent up and they gotta let it out. There's Jamie Lynn Bauer, and right away we get to see her topless as well. All women should stretch that way when they wake up. And have a camera in the room. My camera, specifically, <laughs> but yes. She's great, Jamie Lynn Bauer, in this. I, I really like her. And it's it, again, she starts out as a, an object of beauty for you as an audience member to enjoy looking at. And that's it. That's it. Just look. Mm-hmm. Right. But what's what you're going to watch here is as she gets into her nurse's outfit, she takes on an air of social respectability. She actually has a job. So this isn't slutty slash sexy nurse. Well, it is. <laughs> it is. We're, we're inferring that, of course. Of, of course. But, yeah. But we know that she's, she's a She's not model. trying to put that out. Right. With her no bra under the nurse's uniform. Right. But, you know, her her loose living image, because she's a pinup model in this film, mm-hmm. it, it puts her in the crosshairs of the killer, of course. Well, she's fair game, clearly, right. yeah. for any sort of psychopath that lives this stringent lifestyle. Yes, and as we'll see later on, she's also, because of this air of respectability that she has, where she's a nurse and she has a family that has a, a cabin out in the middle of nowhere, which mm-hmm. evidently has some wealth, she becomes a target for the hippie cult. Right, you got to watch those hippie cults. You really do, especially at this time. This is post-Manson. Post-Manson, yeah. And this was a, a, a part of the national narrative in the United States because of the fact that there were so many of those uh, hippie cult kind yeah, of Yeah, you had Robert DeGrimston and the Process Church. Mm-hmm. You had Manson, of course. Uh, the Hare Krishnas were out. Mm-hmm. The list goes on and on. And they were all anti-establishment, so mm-hmm. they, were, they were scary to a lot of people. Sure. And of course, once the Manson murders happened, everybody looked at them a little differently. It wasn't, <laughs> well, it's over. Right, exactly. <laughs> the, the, the dream story. is dead, and That's the whole it. the ideas behind the dream. Let's really... go to business school and take Wall Street. <laughs> and they did. In the 80s. <laughs> and they did. Sure. So Jamie Lynn was a swimsuit competition winner in Miss, the Miss Illinois pageant. She also has a porn star name. <laughs> she, she does, yeah. Her first film appearance was in the sexploitation comedy The Sexpert, where she plays a sexually aggressive farmer's daughter. And an expert. And an Hence expert. Hence the portmanteau. <laughs> Sexpert. Yeah, she, she worked throughout the 70s and 80s. Uh, television, a lot of television, intermittent roles. She worked with Vincent Price in an episode of Time Express, which is kind of cool. Nice. Andrew Prine's really good in this. He was a familiar face to people. Of uh, course. Especially people who were watching this kind of uh, lower-budget exploitation film in the 70s. He if you're into this sort of thing. Mm, well, evidently. And we trust you are because you're listening to us. <laughs> 
So I like that this film was shot in 16 millimeter, hence the graininess mm-hmm. of the image. And it adds an air, uh, an air of uh, palpability to the film. You can actually feel like it's, it's. You can touch the screen, or you can the touch headlights. the image. Can we talk about the headlights touching the headlights, <laughs> touching headlights of the car, of course. Sure, right. But it works, I think, in the benefit of the film, much like it did in a film uh, like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm-hmm. It adds an era of gritty realism to right. what you're watching. And that's the 70s. A yes. lot of great cinema in the 70s. Uh, Don Siegel stuff and other um, gritty crime dramas mm-hmm. had that. The French Connection. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of films like It's filthy, that. and you got to have some filth in it's there. It's texture, really. Sure. Yep. But what makes this film such a winner for me is that it's a nice mix of that kind of grimy texture and also really beautiful, strikingly beautiful nude women. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a winner on both fronts. That's a plus. That's a plus. It is. That's, a, that's two pluses. It is. Two hard pluses. <laughs> so Jamie has now met Janet Wood, who plays Linda, the hitchhiker. She seems innocuous enough. Doesn't she? Yeah. Sure. What could possibly go wrong? She, uh, for, for fans of horror... She had a really nice role in a movie called Terror at Red Wolf Inn, where she gets killed and eaten by some cannibals who inhabit Red Wolf Inn. Very, very good role for her. And she also worked for Russ Meyer in his film Up, where she played the character of Sweet Little Alice, and she has a really steamy lesbian scene in that film. Actually, a couple, (laughs) now that I'm thinking about it. And outwardly, as a character, she also appears to be the most accessible, the sweetest. She's the lure. She's the bait, clearly, mm-hmm. because the other three are degenerates from the get-go. You see it. Yeah. So yeah. They're freaky, aren't they? They're freaky, and yeah. She is, though. She is very innocent. Like you mm-hmm. said, innocuous. And I think that's that's great because you, you trust her as a character. So sure. it makes her uh, betrayal a lot more visceral when, when you actually... And it's coming pretty soon here, but it's really... Quite something. And this car that she's driving. The boat car. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's yeah, a giant love boat. It. Yeah. Creepy hippies. They're really creepy. And I love just the inserted stock footage of a crash up derby. Mm-hmm. Why not? Again, when you're making a film for $181,000, sometimes you got to use a little cheap stock footage in mm-hmm. there to fill it out. Sure. So, yeah, the Manson family was familiar. And, you know, uh, it was not something that ha- was new to film, in, especially you know, post-Manson. Very soon after the, the Manson killings, there was a lot of movie makers who were using that idea of crazy cults and hippies mm-hmm. and using them as bad guys in their films. Some really wonderful films, others not. Right. But this was uh, very topical also, the idea of killers and the idea of killers targeting women, especially in California at the time that this movie was made. Uh, Ed Kemper had the just... The co-ed killer. The co-ed killer, mm-hmm. right? He had just been uh, caught. He had killed a lot of female hitchhikers. And what, his mom? And yeah, three members of his own family. Right. And he also... Um, Orally, uh, well, let's just say he mm-hmm. had, he, he took the dismembered heads and did some some really some awful, things horrible things stuff. To yeah, you know. Yeah, he also used his own mother's head as a dartboard, which uh, hmm, 
because the regular dartboard just wasn't good enough. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, he killed his he killed most of his victims in around the Santa Cruz, California area. And another serial killer also in that area, Herbert Mullen, mm-hmm. was active at the same time. And hence Santa Cruz became known as the murder capital of the world. Yep. For a time and rightly so. And that was later exploited in the uh, the Lost Boys. Yes, that is technically Santa Cruz. Right. That boardwalk and the like. Here's Aldo Ray as Ed Walker, the handyman, enjoying the view. Like a man his age should. Uh Well, he also has this very shrewish wife, played by Paula Shaw. The total non-hairdo. Yeah, yeah. She's a brutal-looking woman. She is. She turned that into gold for herself because she had a, had a great career. Brutal gold. Brutal gold. Yeah. She might be known to horror film fans as uh, Pamela Voorhees in Freddy vs. Jason. That winner. Mm-hmm. Mm. She also played Joyce DeWitt's mother on Three's Company, which I, you can totally see that she could be I can. Joyce's Same mom. Same haircut, actually. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so let's let's think of hippie cult mo- killer movies or horror films. There was David Durston's I Drink Your Blood from yes. 1970. And together we'll all freak out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there was uh, 1971's film Sweet Savior. Yeah. There was The Death Master, which was uh, Ray Danton actually directed that, who we're going to see later in this film. And of course, after this, there was Helter Skelter and uh, just yeah. a whole bunch of uh, direct adaptations of the story of Charlie Manson. Mm-hmm. That's nice. A nice game of cards. A single can of Budweiser because she's a good girl. It's a little chilly in that room, too. You can see that. <laughs> Remind me if I'm ever a movie director to always have the AC down. Like- you know, 55 Fahrenheit. Just Adds looking. a certain texture to the ladies texture. in your film. Because I'm into texture. <laughs> it's true. I'm into Jamie Lynn Bauer's amazing blue eyes. She's just beautiful blue eyes. Very soulful. So it makes her violation that's coming here from the, the you know the cultists that are about to come in to the house. Yep. That much more frightening and sad. So in case it wasn't enough that you've already got to glimpse the toplessness of Jamie Lynn Bauer, here it is again. And it's better the second time, isn't it? This is this is quite a showcase for her. She's absolutely gorgeous girl. Now, you have to, I guess, put it into context a little bit. The, this era, the nudity in context? The nudity, right. right. Uh, this era, it was the, there was such a, a freedom that, that filmmakers finally had that they were able to show women nude. They were able to, to show sexual situations to audience members because that, that was really a new thing in the United States especially. Um, it was something that really began, I guess, in the late 60s. And by the time this era, the, set, the mid-70s was around, they had a lot of places that these kinds of films could be shown, such as the aforementioned drive-in theaters and grindhouse theaters. Yeah, and you saw more of it in Europe earlier on, too. You, def- you definitely did, yeah. 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 But anyway, uh, so long story short, they wanted to show it because audience members demanded it at this point. They really, it was like, wow, I, we can actually glimpse some nudity. And what better... <laughs> way to glimpse some nudity than in a drive-in p- 
parked vehicle where everything is big everything is big and you might have a date on your arm and right. you know you have uh the, you're able to look at the screen and say hey you want to impress her with 10 foot high breasts well <laughs> yeah, and they are impressive too <laughs> or make her feel bad her, i don't know well, I think maybe that'll bounce back and yeah. she's like take me home i think that's I feel it. small in comparison you make them feel bad because look they're doing it on screen they have no problem taking their tops off yeah. what's the matter with you over there i think the it's all how you seat. spin it really yeah it is Maybe a case of old Milwaukee in the back there, <laughs> you know, to sort of sweeten the deal. Because we know the ladies love that. What, cheap beer? Cheap beer. Oh, God, ladies. You <laughs> Lady, love that stuff. Ladies love that, yeah. They love that. It's impressive. So the cast of hippies here, there's Tim, the hippie leader, played by... Tex Watson. Dennis Jewell, a.k.a. Dennis Olivieri. He was a Disney actor for a long time in the 60s. I just wanted to be Tex from the Manson family. Sure. Yeah. It seems obvious. It does, yeah. Yeah, he was on a lot of te- uh, 60s television shows and then had a series that he was starring in with Tiffany Balling, who we're going to meet later in the movie, called The New People, which was a very short-lived TV series, but it was um, successful enough to be an inspiration later to the makers of the, the series Lost, who used the basic premise. Hmm. So they were new and then they were quickly old, mm-hmm. that's what we're saying. New people who became old people. Old people. Just, I really hate the Janis Joplin hippie. Okay, that's Tita Baracci. Yeah, thank you. Playing Rita, right? Oh my God, I hate her. <laughs> She's. Uh, what is it about her exactly that, that you hate? Yeah, head to toe, everything. Well, you know, and and John Pizer, the director of the film, admitted as much uh, about this movie and the making of it that he thought he let these hippies go a little too far and become a little <laughs> bit too eccentric, I guess, to this episode to begin the film. And it's true because it somewhat lessens the the you know the the fear of the stalker killer character that you have these hippies who are just as bad almost. Yeah, Tita Bracci was uh, a relatively well known L.A. musician, and she was also a stage actress in L.A. She was in the the production of Hair with Ben Vereen out there. She played Bull Jones in Jack Hill's. The Big Bird Cage, great mm-hmm. film. Aside from her, yes. Mm-hmm. I like anything in a bird cage or a dollhouse. You know. <laughs> sure, yeah. Yeah. And the the short haired hippie character is Tally Cochran playing Donna. Mm-hmm. And she played a lot of hippies, a lot of hookers, a lot of lesbians in uh sexploitation films and some outright pornography films as well. She starred as Fanny Hill uh, for Joe Sarno, great director Joe Sarno in the movie The Young Erotic Fanny Hill. Because if you're going to have Fanny, she should be erotic. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah, Tita takes her top off now and I think what maybe is so offensive is that she's so uh, anti-feminine it, or seemingly so mm-hmm. her characters have, I think that's in there sure yeah I think that's part of it I think that she's also so obnoxious her nudity is inconsequential which is saying something for folks like you and I mm-hmm. because normally we're like hey look boobies not so much here <laughs> I just don't care so Dennis Olivieri here is um he's pretty good first of all he found himself around this era playing a lot of counterculture characters 
because he was able to grow a beard and he was relatively young. <laughs> no one else could grow a beard. Well. <laughs> can you grow a beard? Yes or no? Right. If you can grow a beard, you can be a hippie right. in, in lots of these types of films. Well, you see the fellows who try to grow a beard and it's all splotchy. Yeah. And patchy. He doesn't like, have that problem. Stop that. He doesn't have that problem. Yeah, not so much. That beard is believable. Yeah. Tough life for Jackie here. She's pretty foxy, though. She has a dignified expression throughout this entirety, being terrorized by the hippies here. She, a dignified she, foxy? Dignified and foxy, sure, right? yeah. Sure. And here's Aldo Ray again. He's an interesting story. He joined the Navy out of high school and served as a frogman in the Pacific during World War II. Which sounds funnier than it actually is. Oh, frogman? Yeah, <laughs> sure. After the war, he attended the University of California on the GI Bill and became a small-town constable in California before he turned to making films in the early 50s. And he played in Hollywood a lot of loudmouth rednecks, a lot of cops, a lot of gangsters, military men, and that sort. And he was very good at it. Well, you know, play the stereotypes, I guess. You know, if they're signing the checks, do it. Yeah. yeah. Well, his breakthrough was uh, for a couple of films for George Cukor, great director George Cukor. And those were The Marrying Kind and Pat and Mike. And those movies made his name. And he's worked steadily thereafter. You see, though, she's fiery still. She is. Yeah. She's a hot tamale. She's ready to explode. She's she is. very good actress in this. I enjoy her. Yeah. But she shrinks from being smacked in the face, so it's... It's kind of endearing, actually, if you really think about it. <laughs> Being smacked in the face or shrinking away yeah, from the, it. The sort of shrinking violet routine. Yeah. It's, it's sexy. And you see that again, of course, coming up. We, we, we have the benefit of having seen I mean, seen don't hit movie. your women. I mean, I'm not saying that. Mm. But, you know, if she gets hit, well, it's, you know, you can have an opinion about that. About how they should react <laughs> when, when struck? I, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I think, it, you know, don't smack women, but, you know, if she gets smacked and you're like eh, that's kind of hot a little bit what are you gonna do <laughs> but get yeah, arrested but, go to well, jail no, 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 no. right don't hit the women end up in an orange jumpsuit right. <laughs> it's like you don't want car accidents to really happen but if one happens you're gonna crane your neck and take a look okay it's gonna happen uh, now that you it's put there it in that perspective I, right. you're so much less misogynistic in my eyes <laughs> we love women here at terror transmission we, we do yeah we yeah. do we ha you have to understand that this is uh take us with a grain of salt <laughs> with that kind of mm -hmm. humor obviously violence against women is something that it, that should be frowned upon or giving them twisted sister makeup it should also be like frowned here. upon. although they do a really bang up job on her she looks great they do that's good makeup. She's not going to take it as soon as she wakes up. <laughs> they force her to get drunk where she's visibly intoxicated here. and she That's a difficult thing to do, force alcohol down somebody's throat. Yeah, you have to hide it in something usually. Yeah, right? Something sweet. Something candy-like. I've never had that problem with alcohol, needing it to be forced down my throat. I'm a willing participant. No, we're cads. That's the difference. So this is where the, this whole hippie situation becomes really are disturbing. You saying, are you saying it's not so peace and love? Not so peace and love. It's very disturbing right. here. Yeah. 
where she is just a she has absolutely no defenses. You're, you're saying maybe some folks in this time period use the hippiedom thing as a sort of smokescreen to get all weirdly fringy, sexual, you know, rapey. And kind of absolutely, and have access to drugs. And there was a lot sure. of opportunists amongst the hippies, for sure. People that otherwise may not have had such luck with the ladies. You know who I blame? The bikers. Or the, the men, if you're a female. You might not have not bikers. Had that much. Bikers. Bikers kind of came into the hippie culture a little bit, and I think they, you know. They came in with pool they cues. They said, hey, look, alt- look what you Altamont can do. And, uh, look what you can do. 19, what was it, 1969 with the Hells Angels mm-hmm. uh, the, at the concert there. Sure, Altamont. Rolling Stones, yeah. yeah. So Manson and Altamont, mm-hmm. kind of, yeah, the dual kind of experience post-hippie thing. She runs pretty well for an intoxicated girl in makeup and mm-hmm. impractical running shoes. Do you know a lot about women running away from you drunk? <laughs> you laugh, so I'm going to say yes, you do. That's a yes, folks. Uh, yeah, I'd like, like to say they're more apt to run towards me when when drunk, but that's, that may well, not be the case. You can spin it any way you like mm-hmm. there, mister. I was going to say I know what you feel. It's, cartoon- it's cartoony here, the chase sequence with the hippies, because they're still acting so outlandish. I can see what John Pizer was talking about. I think he might have let them go a little too far here, yeah. So Pizer, of course, because he was working so quickly, doing 40 to 50 setups per day, which is extremely fast filmmaking, he didn't have a lot of time to handle his actors and actresses. He tried to work with them on their performances in the morning while they were being uh, made handle up them and less having their later. hairstyles. And, right. and, you know, of course, he worked with the people who were less experienced. Uh, he worked with them a little bit more because they needed a little more guidance. Mm-hmm. And I think what you have here with the, with the hippie, cult people is that they're just a little bit less experienced. Obviously, they're very young. So. Yeah. You know, it would have been funny if the girl going to the door with the family went, I want to rock! <laughs> they're like, oh my God, let her in. Cold cream. That's how you solve the problem. Cold cream? Yeah, that's, oh. That's almost worse than the actual application of the makeup itself. <laughs> it's like this nasty stuff to get it off. So there's also something there. I mean, look at Paula Shaw, right? She's not very feminine. She doesn't wear makeup. And the first thing that she does is take the makeup off of Jamie Lynn Bauer. Right. Almost like, okay, it is, you know, it's cartoonish and it looks ridiculous on her face. But at the same time, you could tell that she's trying to defeminize her a little bit uh as well. She wants to knock her down a peg because she's worried that her husband ogles her. Okay, that's an interesting way to go. Sure. And Ed Walker, Aldo Ray, really does ogle her. And who could blame him? He's an ogler. That's his gig. He becomes an ogre later, not just an ogler. (laughs) Wow. It's nice, though. He escorts her to our hotel room. Mm Mm-hmm. He seems to be really uh, genuine and caring. He stops by her home earlier to offer her, you know, groceries. He's going to the store, see if she needs anything. It's good to appear that way. Maybe, yeah. Because of the investigation, you know. Maybe the cops bring you in and they question you a little bit. Oh, we're talking about the movie. Sorry. All right. All right. Well, okay. Back to the centerfold, girls. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, you know... uh, I, I really like Aldo Ray. He was in some big, big, big movies. For instance, he was in Where No Angels with uh, Humphrey Bogart, Peter mm-hmm. Ustinov. Yep. He was in a lot of film noirs, great film noirs through the, throughout the years. 
And he ended up in a lot of genre films starting in the late 60s. Uh, his first was George Powell's movie, The Power, in 1968. Kind of a precursor to Scanners, the idea of Scanners. Um, but just before the Centerfold Girls, he had worked on some black exploitation films. And then really this era, the, the 1973, 1974, was where Aldo Ray's new career kicked off, where he was in a lot of low-budget horror exploitation films that really lasted until the end of his career. I don't think she's pulled down her sheets enough. She sort of set up and... Well, she's sick of the nudity at this point. She's like, really, John Pizer, do you need me to flash my breasts again? Is that, is, is that and necessary? And the answer is... <laughs> Resounding yes, but that's, yes. that's just us. Here's yeah, John Hart as the sheriff here. Other, yeah. He's good. Uh, Western star. Serial star. Well, he's got a hat on, so it's the cowboy hat. Yeah, he was an actual cowboy, so he got hired to do a lot of did he, stunt did work. Did he punch those dogies? <laughs> yes, I'm sure did. he did. Doesn't that sound terrible? It does, doesn't it? it? Why are you doing that? Don't punch them. Don't punch the dogies. Whatever the hell they what are. What is a dog? Uh, yeah, that's right. What's a dogie? What's a dogie? Just don't punch them. That's what I'm saying. He had just made, uh, John Hart had just made Bonnie's Kids for Arthur Marks. Mm-hmm. And this was the follow-up. Great movies, both. Yes, yeah. Mm. Some stock footage of a water skier. Why not? Not Arthur Fonzarelli. <laughs> there are no sharks. That's no why. sharks to jump, yeah. Right. And there's our killer again, lurking and prowling outside this uh, beautiful home, which was beautiful. Now it's been destroyed. Angry, angry hippies. Mm. Well, they have a lot to be angry about, I guess. You know, the environment and mm. all that. So this is where you the, the true character of Ed Walker is revealed, where you realize that he really objectifies her just as everybody else in the movie has in one way or another. She's a, a sex object, basically, to mm -hmm. be played with and, and discarded. That's terrible. Oh, I Well, agree. you make it sound terrible. I make it really sound terrible. Yeah. Maybe it can be nice. Maybe it can be loving. You know? No, you don't know. No, I don't. No. Aldo Ray is really disturbing in this. That He almost has this uh, this gentleness in his eyes, but at the same time, he's predatory. It's a, a great juxtaposition that he manages to convey because he's a great actor. Aldo Ray. Unfortunately for him, his career, again, he had a lot of exploitation and genre films that he made, but his career... He never was able to make it back as an A-lister. He ended up getting booted out of the Screen Actors Guild for taking non-union work in 1986. That's terrible. I agree. Terrible. I think the lowest ebb for uh, Aldo Ray was his uh, film that he was involved in called Sweet Savage, which was a porno western. Mm. Yeah. Chevrolet. This near rape brought to you by Chevrolet. I forgot their slogan. I remember <laughs> right. built Ford tough, but that's that's the competition. Right. No. So I got nothing. And look at uh, Andrew Prine as he he kind of he's very fastidious with his appearance. Yes, he he's Natalie dressed. He is, isn't he? Yes, he, he smooths the hair, but he also has that that really um, the expression. Where he he looks like he's a, a killer on the loose. You can tell he had enjoyed himself very much. He and John Pizer, the director of this film, um, 
I guess, chased a lot of the women. Mm-hmm. And him, Andrew himself had said that they didn't have a lot of time left over to make the movie because they were so busy trying to woo the women. Priorities. And of course, Arthur Marks and John Pizer, they cast the most amazing bevy of beautiful girls for this film. Well, of course, they're not stupid. Right. It's called the Centerfold Girls, right? right? Not and... the ugly girls no one wants in their magazine. <laughs> That's a crazy title for a movie. That is a crazy title. Who would make that? I'm sure it's, it's out. Right. I'm sure that film's out there somewhere. You know, I always like the rock in the room thing. Yeah, it's, it's like, great. It's, it's like it's part of the natural order of the living room. Once again, it's texture. It's texture. Yeah. Kind of needs a fountain of sorts. Maybe a waterfall over <laughs> it. That'd look nice. With the fake plants around it. So here's really the end result. Uh, it's been an escalation of alienation. Is that a microphone I just for, saw in the lower left corner? I, yeah, I think it was. Okay, just yeah. pointing that out for the kids. <laughs> <laughs> we don't... That's an unmentionable match. Don't look behind the curtain. <laughs> right. Don't. No, this is... Uh, the alienation is complete for Nurse Jackie here, where she realizes, again, another would-be savior has come to kill her. And this killing here is really quite something because I think the way that it's filmed, it, it could work multiple ways, but you see the way that the, the spray of blood comes onto the window. Yeah. Now that could be, uh, I guess, uh, symbolic of the camera lens perhaps, mm-hmm. where it makes you as an audience member question what you're watching. Like, why are you watching this? Why are you enjoying sure. this? It makes you really question your own motivations for enjoying this very sordid story. See, I thought you were going to make it a sort of Rorschach test for me. Well. Like, what do you see? Do you see butterfly? Do you see a vagina? <laughs> that kind of thing. Okay, Matt, tell us. What do you see? I see a bat. You see a bat. Yeah. A winged creature. I think that's a... that's a Creature of the night. That's a great middle-of-the-road answer. Grant. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, the movie makes us question. Do we objectify? Do we dehumanize? Are we objectifying the women that we're watching? And are we enjoying, to some extent, the the violations that occur to them or do we just want to get laid right you know sometimes it's that simple sometimes not i didn't ruin your thesis over there no i don't think so no No, i think actually (laughs) that's a i I firmly places you in the objectification corner so (laughs) totally secure with that that's good yeah speaking of which look so what's up with the shoes is he he's got a a kind of some kind of a a shoe fetish going Mm -hmm. on well, if you're going to be Natalie dressed, you should have natty shoes. He has amazing shoes. Sure. He has some great saddle shoes. Part yeah. of that beautiful 50s costume that mm-hmm. he's wearing. It also, it, it's b- disturbing because the costume doesn't fit him. It looks a little bit too small. Like maybe he had it when he was a young boy and grew afterwards. Sure. Makes it a little more disturbing. Yeah. So this is Jennifer Ashley playing Charlie. She's the, the girl who just took her top off there. And she had been previously victimized by Andrew Prine in a movie called Barn of the Naked Dead. Excellent. Which incidentally the title, is, not so much. I, no, but in the movie, not so much. It's uh, yeah. Andrew Prine recalls that that is the one movie that he really regretted having his name attached can I, to. Can I move into that house, by the way? Yeah, sort no kidding. Jack Tripper, Three's Company The roommate kind of there is Janice Blythe, who yeah. was in uh, Eaten Alive mm-hmm. and also played... Ruby in The Hills Have Eyes for Wes Craven. She's yep. the, the good girl in the cannibal clan well, <laughs> who sure. saves the baby. <laughs> so Clement Dunn, who we're going to find out his name pretty soon anyway. So Sorry to spill the beans on that if you, if you don't know it already. Mm-hmm. But he apparently has just nothing else to do with his life except kill beautiful women. 
In leotards. In leotards, sure. Yeah. Murder is his business, and business is good. Mm-hmm. You know, hookers used to wear leotards back then. It's true. Is that true? I saw them at a whorehouse in Nevada. Mm, okay. They all wore leotards, like 14 of them coming out. They didn't have leg warmers, though. It was the <laughs> 80s. I kind of expected leg warmers, too, but just leotards. Heels they wore. He- heels and leotards, mm. if you can picture I thought that. You were, I thought, I thought you were going to say that you're a heel or something. Nah, you no, know? I was 17. They let me in. Okay. The madam was like, oh, come in. We'll find you a nice girl. I was drunk, too, if you can imagine. Here's the, uh, another beach scene here. A lot of this movie was shot in and around the L.A. area. Mm-hmm. And, is this Santa Monica? Uh, the, uh, well, I'm, I think it was uh, Paradise Cove is okay. where a lot of this this sequence sure. was filmed. And then the island they're going to go to, incidentally, was uh, an island that they used to film the, the uh, Ghost and Mrs. Muir TV series. Nice. Mm-hmm. I like crazy redhead hair there. She's beautiful, isn't yeah, she? she is. Yeah, yeah. And this guy, of course, Mike Mazurki. There he is. He's great. We love Austrian him. actor. He played a lot of doltish heavies in his career. My favorite, of course. Yeah. Oh, uh, uh, some like it hot. Exactly. He's wonderful in that. He also played Moose Malloy in Murder My Sweet. Mm-hmm. Great, great role for him. He was in a lot of film noirs. He yeah. was a, uh, a a professional wrestler for a long time called I can Iron, see it. Iron Mike Mazurki. Yeah. Oh, it's great. Isn't that great? Yeah. yeah. Great name. So this is Butterfly Beach in Montecito, California. Mm-hmm. And Love the cliffs. Yeah, the cottage is Gold Cottage that they're uh, they're going to make their way to here. Mm-hmm. Gold Cottage by the Sea. It's a great location. Uh, he's about the saltiest seafarer <laughs> you're ever going to see, isn't he? Salty. He's loud. Indeed. He's obnoxious. He's uncouth. He's perfect for this. Yeah, he does a great job. We feel an affinity towards him in some weird, removed way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's good here. It'd be great if Mazurki just started yelling lines from his other movies. We always do at Rigoletto's. Something like that. Like, yeah, he's confused now. So our cast here, we have Ray Danton, who plays Perry Sutton, kind of the pimp character here, right? Yeah. He's very handsome, dashing, dark-haired man. He was quite a ladies' man in Hollywood circles, and evidently on the set of this picture as well. Nice. The curly-haired strawberry brunette is Mm -hmm. uh, Ruthie Ross, and she worked as a Playboy bunny in L.A. and was a Playmate of the Month for June 1973 Playboy magazine issue. I always like the bunny dip they did. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, with the the clubs they worked at, they did the little sort of squat. Right. That's the bunny dip. They would reveal their their hind ends. Yeah, they take the money off the table. So you want to hear Ruthie Ross? This is the Playboy bunny. Her turn-ons were skin and hair. Her turn-offs, vacillation. Intemperance and greed. Vacillation. I know. Isn't that amazing? That sounds kind of... This is from her Playboy yeah. centerfold spread. Sure. You know, where they'd have the little uh, stats when it, when or whatever. Hair and skin are her favorite. We all have that. <laughs> <laughs> what? I believe there are animals lower down the chain from right. humans I who also, also have hair and skin. Leatherface was also really into hair and yeah. skin. So, yeah. yeah. Mm. George the Animal Steel had really. a lot of skin and, and a, lot a lot of hair. Of hair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mike Mazurki. 
He's yeah. still here. So he plays a lot of these idiot characters in in the films that he was in. But he was in real life. He was a very highly kind of a intelligent lovable man. Idiot, though. Yeah, yeah, highly intelligent guy and uh, and a great actor, great yeah. character yeah. actor. Nice close up on the the saddle shoes there, mm-hmm. wing tipped saddle shoes. They do. They have little dots in them. I love this uh, serial killer slasher, Man About Town. Man on the go. Man on the go. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I look at Andrew Prine, and I think also of um, Malcolm McDowell in that time period. Mm. Had the same kind of hair, lanky, Clockwork Orange era mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah, Similar played, vibe. Played a lot of creeps. Yeah. Sure, yeah, yeah, of course. And still does. Mm-hmm. And now the seance begins. <laughs> <laughs> I love the, the the lighting in this middle sequence here is beautiful. It's very reminiscent of the Giallo film, which was very popular in Italy. Yep. That was uh, the, the Giallo films for the uninitiated are mm-hmm. films that, that are associated with usually a black gloved mystery yeah. film killer, right? Kind of Italian psycho thrillers. Yes, and they always yeah. had beautiful naked women. They did. And they always were centered around uh, usually artists or models or people in, in the arts mm-hmm. in some way or another. And they were usually quite wealthy. Yeah. And oftentimes there was like a guy and a girl and they team up to sort of play detective. Yeah, <laughs> about, sure, sure. Solve the mystery, solve the murder. I think uh, Deep Red, Dario yeah. Argento's film, comes yeah. to mind as very typical of, mm-hmm. of the genre. Sure. But the lighting in this, anyway, it's very reminiscent of it that. Is. It's very well done. The yeah. photography is just excellent here. Mm-hmm. Robert Maxwell is the director of photography on, on this film. And he was actually recommended to the production staff by Roger Corman, who himself was making a lot of these great exploitation films at this time. And good on him, I say. Mm-hmm. And John Pizer, the director, credits a lot of the success of the film and the way it looks to Robert Maxwell. And... He says he did a great job achieving atmosphere with low-key lighting and filters and no budget and no time to do lighting setups. This was stuff that a lot of this is filmed on location, so you had a limit to how much you could actually place, where you could place lights, how much light you could Mm -hmm. use. Light bulbs are expensive, man. (laughs) They are. The movie lights are expensive, that's for sure. All those two. Mm. So Maxwell started out as an assistant cameraman for Ed Wood on Orgy of the Dead. Mm-hmm. It's that great set in a cemetery go-go film with a bunch of girls who come out and, yeah. and reveal themselves. And it's a fun film. And he had a lot of low-budget exploitation experience before this as a cameraman and then as a director of photography. Worked on a lot of films in his career, Robert Maxwell did. That redhead's mouth is alluring. She is beautiful. Yeah, she is quite something, isn't she? Yeah. And the blonde with her here is Kitty Carl playing Sandy. Meow. Mm-hmm. She was a star of the comedy sexploitation film Kitty Can't Help It in 1975. Like James Mansfield, Girl Can't Help It. Girl Can't, exactly, yeah. Kitty Can't yeah, Help yeah. It. Mm-hmm. Cute. I love girl time. Isn't it nice? Yeah, <laughs> Little sure. chat, it's so cute. So here's Ray Danton again. He went to school at Carnegie Tech in Pittsburgh, and after service in the military, he got a job working in radio, and then he started working on stage as an actor, and by the early 50s, he began working in film. 
You know, I heard Carnegie Tech was later Carnegie Mellon. That's correct. I heard yes. that somewhere. It's a great school for yeah. the arts. He married Julie Adams from Creature from the Black Lagoon. Mm-hmm. Whom you love. I very much do. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, he was in a lot of, he played a lot of bad guys, right? A lot of heavies. He was Legs Diamond in The Rise and Fall of Legs Diamond and then also in Portrait of a Mobster. He was also George Raft in the great movie, The George Raft Story. But what happened with Ray Danton is he got really sick of being a heavy and he got sick of working in television, which he did quite a bit. I want to be taken seriously, I damn think, it. Yeah, so what, he, what did he do? He pissed off to Europe and started working in a variety of different roles and mm-hmm. had, had a little more fun. Great. He worked for some great directors as well. Great directors like Jess Franco, king of exploitation. Jesus, as his friends call him. Jesus, the Jesus of Europe, yeah. Sure. Uh, He also worked for Giorgio Ferroni, great director in Italy. Eventually, Ray Danton matriculated back to the United States and started directing movies like The Death Master for Robert Quarry. That's unexpected. The English version of Hannah, Queen of the Vampires, starring Andrew Prine. Mm-hmm. He also directed the movie Psychic Killer with Aldo Ray. Oh, I like that one. Mm-hmm. He had a great success, uh, successful career as a television director as well. He did very well for himself. And he also continued working as an actor on television and in an occasional film now and again. But he's just so smooth in this, mm-hmm. you know? He smokes. I mean, that's what men and women that were smooth sure. did. And, and animals. And animals. They smoke sometimes. <laughs> All creatures, great and small. If you're smooth, you have to well, have a the cigarette. The chimpanzees in the labs. Give him a cigarette. Give him a camel or a Marlboro. They'll smoke up. Smoke up, Johnny. <laughs> smoke up. Smoke up, Johnny. <laughs> it's good for you. Put hair on your chest. <laughs> they got a head start, believe me. <laughs> So he is called the pimp, of course. Pimp daddy. Yeah. And the, the girl the uh, the girl who is kind of the mastermind of this whole get-together and the photo shoot is played by Francine York. Mm-hmm. She plays Melissa. I guess she's a modeling agent. Eh? Um, but she definitely uh, disregards him. So it makes this encounter that he has with this young ingenue beauty who's very willing to go topless and, and you know, yeah. uh, have her way with him. Makes it more believable. Hard nipples really make it believable. That's the texture we were talking about. It is. Texture's important, mm. peoples. And there's a pussy cat just, just because. And that means something. <laughs> just, they couldn't show full frontal nudity. They wanted to show no. some pussy. They, 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 they inserted right. it right there. Some tail. That's another term. <laughs> there you go. Sure. So this, the sequence where Andrew Pryan, the killer, comes into the house, just so easily opens the door and walks in mm-hmm. while they're all slumbering. He's like a Ted Bundy. It's really creepy. Yeah. Ted Bundy, the Kyle Omega murders. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. Uh, absolutely. Slipped yeah. in. Yep, I can see that. Girl by girl. Yeah. He was charming too, though. Ted Bundy? Yeah. Charming Ted. They less, him. less charming than Clement Dunn in this, who's not at not all so charming. charming. No, no. no he's, he's really kind of not. off-putting. Can you imagine him at the party? You're like, who's that guy? How <laughs> right. do we get him out of here? Who's that guy sneering at me over yeah, in the corner with the yeah. saddle shoes? Yeah. What's he even doing here? He's not drinking anything either. Looking, What's wrong with him? Looking for women to kill. Yeah. There's Francine York in bed. There she is. So he is a clever killer, right? So he has the opportunity right now. 
he, she's a sitting duck or a sleeping beauty or whatever right. you like to say. And he can sleeping totally, duck. he can, he can slash her if he wants to, but he doesn't, he's thinking mm-hmm. ahead. He's a clever killer. He wants to be able to get them all. Yeah. So he very He's wisely. He's long term. Yes, he is. Right. Very wisely decides to. Like a businessman. Hunt from outside the house. Right. And now Sandy's going to go for an evening stroll. It's a nice shot of Andrew Prine coming down the staircase. It's quite a location they found here. It is. It's a pastiche of different styles, I architecturally like speaking. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But it, it makes a lot of sense for this photo shoot for these people because obviously they're supposed to be high living types. I said pastiche. <laughs> you pleased with yourself? <laughs> a little, actually. Good for yes. you. Yeah. Good for you. Sure. I like her pink nighty. That's very, very cute. I like everything these girls are wearing or not wearing, mm. as the case might be, which it is. This is nicely shot from down below as she peers over the, the cliffs. And then it becomes a hammer film all of a sudden. <laughs> right there it you is. You hear the ghostly echoes of... Well, the sound design, I wanted to mention the sound design in this film. It's beautiful. This sequence especially with the, with the music is swelling. Yeah, swelling. And sure. uh, it's I think it's excellent. And you're going to notice that it's going to be music swelling and then the razor comes out. This right. is a great build up right here. Very well done. And a lot of this music was actually stock music. So the music cuts out. It's interrupted by the scream, which then cuts to the crashing of the waves down below. That's beautiful. Great sound design. Kind of hammer again. (laughs) And and immediately you go from killing to nipples. Boom. Lots of nipples. How you doing? Is there any way I can get some of these photographs that they're taking here? Because they're just going to be amazing, right? Sure. Take it home with you. Mm. Yeah. Home is where you want to take it, of course. So I guess this begs the question, are these the people who were were responsible for putting out that calendar slash magazine that he's cutting all of the heads out of? Hmm. Is that why Clement Dunn targets, or is he just after that specific model? Or these girls will just show it off for anyone, Mm. you know? Well, they're showing off for us. There wouldn't be a movie without it, Matt. Then that's everyone, (laughs) isn't it? So here's Francine York. She's Melissa, the, the modeling agent. And she is a familiar face, I think, for people that are fans of, I guess, anything 60s, television, uh, science fiction films. She was on Batman um, and just about every other amazing 60s TV show you can think of. Green Acres, The Wild Wild West, I Dream of Jeannie, Bewitched, etc., etc. She worked a lot for Irwin Allen, Lost in Space, Mm -hmm. The Time Travelers, Land of the Giants, Flood. And she was very famous in Hollywood circles as a chef and a dinner hostess. That's unexpected. Yeah. Hmm. And I guess she used to have these really amazing dinner parties and soirees where she would invite a bunch of the elite actors of Hollywood and a bunch of the filmmakers Mm -hmm. of the day to her place. I'm waiting for the Clara Bow ending here. (laughs) No, there's no Clara Bow ending. uh, Well, there is an ending, but it's not a Clara (laughs) Bow ending, no. 
See, I read Hollywood Babylon. I want it to be all real. Mm-hmm. All of it. All and the I know smut most of it is this. All the smut in the stories. Yeah, and, yeah. Well, I guess they're playing upon that with, uh, even in this sequence, they're playing upon that. Like, what really goes down behind the curtain mm-hmm. of a photo shoot where there's naked women or of movie making? Because you hear all the stories about yeah, the high I, living and they have money, they have drugs, sure. they have beautiful women, and there's just <laughs> orgies happening everywhere. And then someone screws up. On drugs. <laughs> They're hopped up on goofballs. So I guess this might be a good point to start talking about misogyny. Not Matt's or my what? misogyny. Hmm? But what? The misogyny. How dare you, sir? I think what happens with a lot of people who watch a lot of slasher films is you are focused upon the slayings of the females. And of course, because those are very often the focal point of those types of And the of razor's movies. really phallic, blah, blah, blah. Sure, right. But at the same time, in a lot of these slasher films, and the centerfold girls is no exception to that, they have a tendency to kill a lot of males as well. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, they don't necessarily have the males take their shirts off and strut around for 15 right. minutes beforehand. And let's be honest, dead males, no one really cares about them. <laughs> Really? Let's be honest. <laughs> well, exactly. Kill all women, the, everyone the, are up in arms. The critics of the no slasher film always dying. ignore the death of the males. Sure. Mm. No one cares. It's okay, too, by the way. Mm-hmm. And the killer is back in the house. And he's ten feet tall. <laughs> I like that there isn't an ounce of blood on the saddle shoes. Just saying. He's a very cleanly sort, is this killer. He's all about appearances, Matt. I don't know if you've noticed that, but his own appearance. I think we both noticed it, actually. He's, he's obviously quite uptight about his own appearance, and he's very uptight about other people's appearances or you know, lack of clothing. How does the 70s work out for him? You know, there's that whole, like, don't shave down there mm-hmm. kind of thing in the 70s. That must seem not fastidious to a guy like this. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. Well, look at how he takes care of it. Right. With a blade. With a blade. Any of type course. of blade. He's a man uh, who is, he's not afraid to use some kitchen appliance. No. Or hunting knife later or a razor blade. Sure. So slasher films. Let's talk slasher films. I love slasher films, Jason. Uh, I know this. As do I. So slasher films really work best when they're able to violate an audience member's feelings of control over the film that they're watching. Sure. A canny director, what they will do is they will put characters in situations that you as an audience member are very uncomfortable with. Now, of course, we know that there's a killer on the loose right now. So we would think to ourselves, this is a killer. Don't do that. Don't go in that room. Don't turn your back. Right. Sure. And that's really where the punch from these types of films come from. Because we are able to watch their escalation of follies, which makes us really angst-ridden as audience members. Sure, angst. And we're also in a position that we can say, oh, I, you know, they shouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have done that. And it gives you a sense of cathartic release because you watch these transgressive violence, depictions of transgressive violence. And it gives us a chance to conquer the representations of mm-hmm. death that we're actually witnessing. So we're able to leave the theater and or the living room in this case, empowered by that very conceit that we would have sure. fared better in that situation ourselves. Conceit is the operative word here because clearly you're always thinking, well, really, what would you really do if you were really in this position? You don't know. I think to some degree you might not know. Mm-hmm. You know, well, look if at- all of a sudden you wake up and someone's killing your 
kids and your wife or whatever. You're like, Jesus, what do I do? You could grab the gun. Where's the gun? You know, so many things race through your brain, probably. I would assume. It might not be as easy as it is, you know, from the perspective of a horror movie. And that's why we have these films, because we're able to deal with that, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, that scenario that most of us will never have to deal with, Mm -hmm. thankfully. Sure. But we're able to conquer that uh, that fear of those situations by watching these. Yes, indeed. There's Francine, looking very beautiful. Again, comely. <laughs> and slasher films at this point in the early 70s, they had been around for a while. Mm-hmm. You could make an argument that they started in the silent era, even with a film like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, with the classic scene of uh, Conry- Conrad Veet entering the, the sleeping chamber of the of his would-be victim in the film. But, of course, I think I, the mo- the two movies that really mm-hmm. began the genre yep. in earnest were 1960 films. They were Both. Peeping Tom by Michael Powell and mm-hmm. Psycho by Alfred Hitchcock. Right. And those two films, bam, one-two punch, and it really kicked off the genre. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the genre went through changes along the way. Um, and a lot of those, a lot of the furtherance of the genre came from low budget movies that had a different way of treating the same scenarios, such as Mario Bava's mo- beautiful film Blood and Black Lace, mm-hmm. which is also centered around the killing of models. And that, I believe, it's lingerie models or some kind of <laughs> not very well if dressed you're sexy, models. You're dead. Sexy. Sex equals death, and sexy sure. equals death in mm-hmm. a lot of these. That's true. That's true. But there were several others as well along the along the way, such as H.G. Lewis's movie, The Gore Gore Girls, about a killer who's offing female strippers in 1972. Um, movies like School Schoolgirls in Chains. The, the best way to have schoolgirls, really. <laughs> in Chains. In Chains. The Roommates, Torso. I love Torso. And just in 1974, there was The Centerfold Girls, Alan Ormsby's movie Deranged, based on... Uh, Ed Gein, and Bob Clark's Black Christmas, the first holiday-themed slasher film. Mm -hmm. Didn't go so well, (laughs) that holiday. Mm. It was a Black Christmas. It was. This is very well directed here. The editing is also really, really wonderful in this film. Richard Greer is the editor, and he had worked in in a lot of different professions in the movie industry, he was a production coordinator, he was an editor, he was a producer. So he was very familiar with this type of film. And I think it's exceptionally well put together. When you're talking about 40 to 50 camera setups per day that John Pizer was shooting, uh, really to make that all gel and to do it quickly, that's the editor's job. And the payoff? Pretty naked girls. Pretty naked girls. Sure. There's Francine I mean, they're York. pretty, I mean, they're naked. And I mean, they're pretty naked, just so we're clear. Mm-hmm. Francine Yorka in the shower. So originally, they had cast an actress by the name of Sherry North to play that role that Francine York is. And the nude, it was going to be a nude shower scene there, the death she was going to have exposed breasts. But what happened was Sherry North took ill, and they contacted Francine York to step in and play the role. And she refused to do the nudity terrible so they shot that the shower death scene on a saturday morning so she could race home and put the finishing touches on a huge party that she was hosting that evening for a hundred guests which also involved no breasts <laughs> also no breasts more more uh, catering catering sure day. uh but one of not the guests, catering to the breast crowd <laughs> no not so much okay. one Anyways. of the guests at this uh this amazing amazing 
party that she hosted was Glenn Ford, the famous actor Glenn Ford, who was so taken with Francine York's cooking that he recommended that she contribute articles on cooking and nutrition to magazines. And she did. And she very soon after that had a very good side career going besides acting as a writer, a cooking author, if you will. And here's John Dennis, who's the younger guy. He's shirtless. He's exposing his breasts. So let's sure. be fair. Let's be fair. I don't care if his nipples are hard, though. I wouldn't call that objectification, though, would you? No. No. Maybe it's just because we don't want to see it. <laughs> we don't want to see it is really where it comes down to. And again, no one cares about male death. So Clement has the razor blade again going for him. That's a nice little shot, the splashing of the blood into mm -hmm. the pool. Into the pool. Mm -hmm. right. I think it's less effective because of the filter they were using. This is day for night shooting, which is essentially is you're shooting a nighttime scene, but you have to use daylight to light it. So you put a filter mm -hmm. over the lens of your camera to make it look like it's darker. It's a blue lens or blue filter over the lens. Because actors and the like have this weird quirk about wanting to sleep <laughs> sometime, <laughs> usually at night. So you have a lot more daylight hours to <laughs> deal with. She's got the gun, which you're thinking, okay, she's armed. She can handle herself. Can't she handle the gun, though? She's in a good position here. That's what I say. Well, we're about to find out, Matt. Nice sound here. Nice sound design again. It's very well done. The, the stock music library that they accessed for this was uh, owned by a man named Mark Wolin. But they also have some other music that Arthur Marks owned that they'll get, we're going to use pretty soon in the film. Some music borrowed from his other film, Bonnie's Kids from 1973. I think I would like to own a stock library. Of music or just... As long as I can make money off of it. <laughs> a stock library, period. Sure. There's a lot of outfits uh, in, in Hollywood that have footage and... and uh, musical that's cues, some good money like you basically sit around and wait for someone to use your stuff and then cash in mm -hmm. amazing i want in that's what i'm saying and there she kills uh, her her co-model mm. there's one of those mistakes we're talking about that as an audience member you can say i wouldn't have done that right and, of course, now she runs screaming from the house, which is the worst possible thing she could do. Sure. Helter Skelter. <laughs> right. So the screenplay for the film was written by a man named Robert Pete, who is probably best known uh, for his work on the TV series Good Times. He was a writer and a story editor for that show. Dynamite. That's right. For a mm. long time he was on that. Um, but what happened was Arthur Marks, the producer of the film, had a story that he really wanted to have penned by a capable writer. So he brought it to Robert Pete, who was a, a novice at this point, but he worked with him. They worked together to put, you know, to put this into a, into a shooting script. 
And I think it's really interesting. It's a portmanteau film, and or whatever, an anthology slash portmanteau film, which were very popular at this time. Uh, films that were made up of several stories that usually had a linking mechanism of some kind. Uh, I guess most famously for this era, you would think of the Amicus films that were being made in mm-hmm. England. They were making a lot of uh, like movies like Asylum or Tales from the Crypt. And they were very successful. And of course, the linking mechanism in tonight's film is Andrew Prine, the killer. He's in all the segments. And boobs. And boobs. Yeah. Glorious, glorious boobs. <laughs> And the children say, what is that device with the wheel and the holes and the buttons? And that was a numbers. telephone, right? Right. There's Tiffany bowling. She's bowling. She's bowling. I do either with her, by the way. <laughs> Just so we're clear. <laughs> we're clear. <laughs> we're clear. She's great at playing the stewardess here. Beautiful. And her friend is also quite beautiful. Mm-hmm. Her friend is a familiar face. Her friend is named Pam in the film. She's also her roommate, played by Annika de Lorenzo, who has an interesting story. Let's tell it. She ran away to California at the age of 14 and ended up working as a nude dancer and perhaps as a prostitute. The reason we say perhaps is that she was arrested for lewd conduct, indecent exposure, counterfeiting checks. You had me a dancer, by the way. (laughs) Grand theft auto and possession of tear gas. So she knew how to party. (laughs) Um, That's my next wife right there. But after she saw Bob Guccione on television, Bob Guccione of um, a very famous magazine, Penthouse, uh, she saw him appear on television. She sent him a bunch of nude photos of herself saying that she'd like to be in the magazine. So she did end up in the, as a, a cover girl, centerfold girl, in the September issue of 1973 Penthouse. And she was also the 1975 Penthouse Pet of the Year. She can pet her all year long, that's what you're saying. She was also in movies at the same time. She made the movie Rape Squad, and she starred in Bruno Corbucci's Messalina, Empress of Rome. She also played Messalina in some hardcore lesbian footage that was added to Tinto Brass's Caligula. And that footage was actually directed by Bob Guccione, who she was dating at that time. Now, years later, she would sue Bob Guccione, claiming sexual harassment. She says that he forced her into sexual situations with a couple of his business associates who he was trying to woo into helping him finance a casino. Can't imagine. She won the lawsuit, but <laughs> didn't make a lot of money off of it. Now, she was in, uh, she was found a couple of years ago, drowned with a broken neck and a broken back in the Pacific Ocean near Camp Pendleton in California. And it's still an unsolved case, thought to be a murder case. Maybe she was parasailing. (laughs) Parasailing. Sure, parasailing. (laughs) Right, because you can, yeah. Just for example. And nude parasailing, because she was found nude with a broken neck and broken back. Come on, back then, Mm -hmm. there was nude everything back then. (laughs) And... Tiffany Bowling's other friend, the blonde here, is Connie Strickland. Hello, Connie. Patsy, her How you doing? blonde friend. Now, she's going to end up getting killed instead of the character of Vera, who she's mistaken for by the slasher. At no this, accidents happen. At this party full of mustache. Look at this. It's a mustache party. Yeah. There's a lot of mustache going on here. It's very culturally correct. Uh, do you mean that there's uh, equal representation of women, men, and minorities? I'm saying exactly that, mm-hmm. sir. 
I like this. It's very nice. It's handheld shots. There's a lot of close-ups. It looks like a kind of a great party, actually. We'd go. I'd go. Yeah, sure. Especially when the top comes right. off. <laughs> it's icing on the cake That's, right there. It's a new party at yeah. that point. <laughs> so Connie Strickland was also a model and a Playboy bunny. She had just worked for producer Arthur Marks on The Roommates. And she also made Black Samson for him. Nice blue lighting in her place. Nice ugly dog. Mangy looking dog. It's a terrible looking dog. It's a counterpoint to how beautiful she is that she it's has a, a contrast. dog. It's a contrast. Contrast. Sure. There goes the halter top. And the top comes off. I, You know, we should have done a, a boob count in this movie. They always do body counts for slasher films, but yeah. they never, a boob counts not so much. Yeah. Do we count the sets or do we count them individually? <laughs> I mean, we should make they a are, scientific right, they are uh, They are individuals, so let's count they them are. individually. Sure. I have two hands. I have two breasts. That's some great lighting on Andrew Prine, the, the bottom lit there. It's it is. great. And it's very creepy here. How she's in the mirror and doesn't see him coming until... Yep. It's way too late. And well, she doesn't expect in, anything to happen. I like how the, the, the camera zoom initially is on the breasts, and then it moves up just slightly to catch the razor mm-hmm. going across her throat. That's both. All right. What's more important? So director John Pizer, uh, his father was a frustrated Broadway producer, so he grew up around a lot of artistes in, in the New oh, York Oh, that area. makes it more important, by the mm-hmm, way, mm-hmm. what he just said. Sure. But he knew from a very young age that he wanted to work in the business. So he ended up, after school, directing radio dramas. And he sold them to small radio stations that were looking for extra material across the country, the United States. And he ended up getting a job at NBC, first as a page, and then as a fill-in director for radio soap operas. Eventually, NBC put him in their television department. Now, after his service in World War II... He moved to L.A. and began working as a contract director at Warner Brothers and then Universal. And eventually, he would tally more than a thousand television episodes as a director. Quite prolific. And he met producer Arthur Marks while he was working on the Perry Mason series. You know, I think Tiffany is like a much hotter Elizabeth Montgomery. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to see her on Bewitched. She's quite beautiful. Yeah. She can do the little nose thing. Yeah. So when director John Pizer uh, found work drying up for him, he actually left for Spain in 1966, and he worked there on the television show The Rat Patrol. While he was there, he also directed feature films and uh, some, some other television movies. But eventually, he was broke, and so he found himself back in the United States. And he ran in a parking lot. He ran into his old friend, Arthur Marks, who told him, I have a picture that's starting pre-production. Would you like some work? And of course, John Pizer being broke said, absolutely, and found out that the film was going to be The Centerfold Girls. Andrew Prine. So Andrew Prine, here's a good story. He owned a custom-built waterbed, which was illuminated 
so that you could see the racy pornographic art that he had featured on the bottom of the bed. Did he put fish in it too? He put goldfish in oh it. Oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> and eventually they all died because he had no way to feed them. But it's amazing, but it's not brilliant. That's, no. that's the distinction. No, there. how sexy is floating goldfish? Like, hey, come up and come back to my pad. <laughs> Check out my goldfish. I think that, that really depends about how quick you are with the ladies. <laughs> and that's not a good thing, by the way. Yeah. I need to finish before the fish die. <laughs> That's a thing. Right. So at this time in Andrew Pryant's career, he was a, a lot of television shows. He was a lot of Westerns, but he was having a tough time getting lead roles because he was, he found himself in that in-between age. He wasn't a young, handsome leading man type. He also wasn't a grizzled, grizzled older leading man type. So he ended up making exploitation films because they were the one avenue that he had to be a star. And he headlined a lot of these movies, movies like uh, Simon King of the Witches. Oh, yeah. And The Centerfold Girls, for instance, and several others. Now, Tiffany Bowling is quite great in this. She plays Vera. I want to go bowling with her. Mm. I also want to go bowling with her. Mm Mm-hmm. So whichever way, I think that's the idea. That's the, why they cast her is that yeah. she could kind of. She looks like she could. That, she that could hold her own. Nominal ambiguity. <laughs> Can we call it that? So Tiffany got her big break when she was uh, she was cast in a bit part in the film Tony Rome, which starred Frank Sinatra. Now, Frank Sinatra and she began an affair together. Of course. And he began an affair with basically everybody he ever encountered. And good for him. And why not? Old Blue Eyes. He's the chairman of the board. (laughs) Yes, he was. Uh, So because of this affair, Frank pulled some strings and got her a contract at 20th Century Fox. Eventually, she ended up leaving Frank Sinatra for an out-of-work actor. Boo-hoo. Well, hey, you know what? If you've loved and you've lost the way Frank has... You know what life's about. (laughs) Right there. So Tiffany was able to turn that 20th Century Fox contract into work pretty quickly. In 1969, she began working on television, appearing on The Mod Squad, Bonanza, and then getting that starring role on The New People with Dennis Olivieri. Later, The Old People. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She also herself appeared as a nude model in a photo spread in the April 1972 (gasps) issue of Playboy. Now, for that, she was never paid. She was paid in promises. They said, this is going to be really good for your career. Do this. So she did. And it's a boulevard of broken dreams right right there. I mean, it did stimulate her career to some extent because she ended up making Bonnie's Kids for Arthur Marks in 1973, which was really her earnest introduction to exploitation films, which she became most heavily identified with in the years to come. She needs to keep taking the shower. She's not clean enough. Is that what you're saying? I'm saying Just exactly hold that. Hold on the shower sequence. I'm really into hygiene. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> so is our killer, Matt. Right, of course. Coincidence? No, not so much. <laughs> so in the years that came after, uh, Tiffany said that because she was appearing in all of these types of films that she wasn't really happy about appearing in because they were somewhat beneath her, she felt. She felt that she had earned a chance at, at superstardom and wasn't you know, being given that chance. So she says that she became rather self-destructive and she had some, had some drug use problems. Um, and then I walked into her life. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. She made some interesting movies, interesting choices in, uh, in roles. She was in the movie Wicked Wicked, which was a slasher film the year before this was made. 
And I guess it's most famous in retrospect for its use of, uh, of a gimmick called DuoVision, which was a split screen process that they used. Well, it was entire... wicked, wicked. Mm-hmm. It was wicked, wicked. She was also in this sleazy exploitation classic, The Candy Snatcher. She's great in that movie. Love candy. Mm-hmm. And she worked first for Arthur Marks on an episode of the new Perry Mason. And he cast her in Bonnie's Kids and then the Centerfold Girls. Now, historically, you have to recognize that she is one of the first United States final girls. Now, final girls, what is that? It's uh, usually in a slasher film, there's a female who's able to outlast the killer. Think Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween or Adrian King in Friday the 13th. 13th, Like there's a woman who just is able to figure out the killer and Mm -hmm. survive the killer and usually do away with the killer in the end. But uh, the same year that this movie was made, there was another great final girl who is played by Marilyn Burns in the movie Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Plays the character of Sally Hardesty, who's also a final girl. But it was something of a new thing in cinema. And here's that wonderful driving score you hear. That was what was taken from Bonnie's Kids. It's a wonderful, wonderful piece of music. I'm getting into it. You, you notice in the hallway the uh, the maid had a really tough time with the handcart there, so it blocks the killer from walking mm-hmm. by. He doesn't want to be noticed. Right. He should really rethink the saddle shoes if he doesn't want to be noticed, though. Sure. All the ladies in this movie have the most amazing vehicles, don't they? They do. It's kind of like a Charlie's Angels kind of thing. Yeah. They all have hot cars because they're hot chicks. <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah. yeah. I will too. Another movie you might recognize Tiffany Bowling from having a great role in is a movie called Kingdom of the Spiders, where she plays an entomologist. With the Shat. That's right, with the Shat, William Shatner. Yeah. And uh, William Shatner and Killer Tarantulas. I'll tell you something. I don't want to ruin it for you. The spiders win. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at the same time that she was making that movie, she was relating to her... Um, her makeup woman on that film that she was having a tough time and I think the makeup woman maybe sensed this about her as well but ended up uh, inviting her to a gathering of the Vineyard Christian Fellowship which was a hippie type of Christian gathering with music and they such. worship Jesus they get drunk <laughs> yeah sure is that what that is and they listen to bad music yeah sure but Tiffany has related in the years since that that this was her introduction to a purer state of being which she would eventually adopt full heartedly so when was this? And this was in uh, 1977. Of course it was. Mm-hmm. Primal Scream, Est, all of that stuff. Encounter Groups. Yes, absolutely. New that was Age. The, that was the beginning of that, yeah. Yeah, of course. She had a really interesting turn. Uh, she hosted Spotlight, which was a a show on the Z channel, which was an underground television channel. Way, in, way underground. Way underground in, uh, in L.A., and on this this show that she hosted, Spotlight, she interviewed various celebrities. Now, of course, in the years after that she left the show, it became something of a huge cult show. But for Tiffany, unfortunately, her screen career faded quietly. And by the time the 1980s rolled around, she really had only a couple of acting appearances. 
You know what you should have done? You should put on roller skates. Because <laughs> girls are hot on roller skates in the early 1980s. And today. Well, and always. And always. Forever and ever. Amen. Here's the sailors that, uh, new saviors that turn out to be also unctuous bad guys, mm-hmm. which. If you're sailors are unctuous, what? <laughs> you're sensing a theme in this movie that all people are dirty, grimy human beings. Especially the obvious ones like drunken sailors. Men. All you. the men. All the men are bad. Okay. Yeah. She has no business being in the front seat with two drunken sailors in a car. Not no. But you know Nothing the, good could come from this, is what I'm saying. But there's danger in the back seat too, Matt, so hmm. right. Yeah. Pick your poison, right? She can't win. She can't win. No. So the sailor in the passenger seat is played by Scott Edmund Lane. He sounds like a serial killer. He was a child actor. He starred in the series McKeever and The Colonel with Jackie Coogan. Lots of 60s TV. Mm -hmm. And the other guy in the driver's seat is played by Richard Mansfield. And he had a bit part in Bonnie's Kids for Arthur Marks. And here she's about to be roofied. Is that how they did it back then? By the sailors. I'm not sure what they would have called it, but they right. gave her something. Bennies. Bennies, maybe. maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Quaaludes. But really, all the males in this have a uh, predatory nature of some sort, usually of a sexual bent. And they resorted to the wide mouth uh, Colt 45s there. Yeah, I see that. Well, it's easier Great. to get the drugs into when sure. they have the big, big, big bottles. opening right? there, sure. <laughs> get it in. So you, you begin to wonder at this point in the movie with all of the guys proving to be such dirtbags, what is the message here? Is the message for women to not wait for a male savior because they're all equally no good? Or is the message to just rely upon yourself and be the source of your own salvation? Lower your expectations, ladies. <laughs> Maybe that's Maybe it. Maybe that's the other lesson. <laughs> that nerdy, weird guy in the corner. Maybe he's okay. Uh, unless he's got saddle shoes and a razor. Or blade. he's Norman Bates. Mm-hmm. Right. That too. Then the answer is none of the above. Mm-hmm. And this was something of a theme in several movies that producer Arthur Marks was responsible for in his career. This, uh, you know, bad, bad males. And it wasn't un- an uncommon narrative to have in exploitation films because a lot of them hinged upon women being in mm-hmm. different states of, you know, disrobed and or, being, sure. you know, in, in situations where they were, you know, in danger. Because of males. See, that's interesting, though. Bad girls are hot. Bad guys are psychopathic. (laughs) Yes, yeah. It's different. It's kind of a double standard. Probably a good one, mind you. (laughs) But a double standard. (laughs) This is a really difficult scene to watch. Because, again, you have a woman who has no defenses being put in a position where she's being raped. And they don't actually show anything... Right. But they do show her moving on the bed and freaking out. And, and it's sometimes really, you don't need to show oh goodness. so much. It's disturbing. Hint at is enough. It's very disturbing. Of course. So you have to understand this. As light and fluffy as we're treating some of the episodes here and some of the nudity and such, there's a real theme here which is not uh, not so savory mm-hmm. that these women are really being violated in, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. 
And we as audience members are, you know, to some extent also violating them just by watching the picture. It makes you feel a little uncomfortable in places. But it's not going to stop me from enjoying the movie, mind you. There's the conflict. There's the conflict. It's a nice shot, and he introduces himself as Clement Dunn, standing next to, I guess, the hotel manager here. With his snazzy sweater. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Arthur Marks, executive in charge of production and the story writer of the film, um, he had been working uh, for a very long time in television. He was most identified with the Perry Mason TV series, which he started on that as an assistant director and then a director and then a producer. But he was uh, yearning to begin directing his own feature films. So he did. He began in 1970 in, with a movie called Togetherness, which starred George Hamilton and Peter Lawford. Kind of a sexy movie. It is, yeah. Yeah. And after that, he had to find his own distribution for that film. So he formed the General Film Corporation, his own production distribution company. That's quite a name. Mm -hmm. Now, his productions were marked by, uh, obviously, very well made. They were made by professionals on the side. For not the most generally part. made. <laughs> no, not no. generally made. Mm. But they, they stood out, and they stand out now as well. And he had a lot of success with them, bringing these low-budget exploitation features to the screen uh, in the 1970s. So he made a lot of... the crotch there for a second. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he made a lot of these in the 70s, uh, films like The Candy Snatchers and Wonder Women, The Roommates, which was a prototype slasher film from 1973. I he, wonder about women sometimes. He also dabbled in black exploitation films, such as Detroit 9000. Essentially, he was catering to audience demands. And, and mm -hmm. in the 1970s, there was a wide array of movies that were being produced, all yeah. sorts. It was really a great, great decade for cinema because it was opening up all these new right. avenues. Uh, uh, well, in the 60s, everything opened up. That's you know, Culturally, true. politically, mm -hmm. socially. Yeah, of course. It's very true. And 70s of course, has to grab onto that. Yeah, well, by the time the 70s rolled around, those people, of the, the children of the mm -hmm. 60s, if you will, they were in a position to begin making their own movies. Sure. Some great, great films. So what happened with Arthur Marks is eventually he ended up working with AIP because he was looking to concentrate on directing and he really wanted to leave producing behind him. Um, so he bowed out of the General Film Corporation to focus on artistic pursuits. Did he come up with better names than the General Film whatever? <laughs> he came up with some good movies right. still, but uh, he worked with uh, Pam Greer a couple times, mm -hmm. movies like Friday Foster. He, he made JD's Revenge with Glenn Turman, great movie. Mm -hmm. But eventually Arthur took some time off to spend with his family, and when he was ready to have a comeback in the industry in the hopes of making A-list films again, he found it really difficult to regain his foothold. So he worked as a consultant and ended up directing a couple of episodes of television series such as uh, Starsky and Hutch and the Dukes of Hazard before eventually retiring for good. By the way, you could buy hunting knives in convenience stores back then. <laughs> Just in case you were wondering. No, I bought one when I was 11. That was back in 79, so you could do that. It's totally true. And yeah, there she finds the... What is that? It's like a cardboard stock. It's not a calendar because there's no actual months with days on it? No, it's like someone stuck pictures onto... 
Yeah, light cardstock. Whatever it is, I'd like a copy of a it. Fake magazine. I'd like basically. a copy of that. Sure. Well, it's it's sturdy and it's you know mm-hmm. take abuse. Sure. So you know it's all yours, <laughs> all yours. So uh, Andrew Prime, he got a taste for acting when his parents took took him to a tent production of Showboat in Jacksonville, Florida, and he was 13 at the time. Mm -hmm. And he says as soon as he saw those performers on stage, he knew that he wanted to be one of them. Now, he grew up in a very small farm town in Florida, and after high school, he had... So he didn't want a farm, is what you're saying. After high school, he moved to to Miami and attended the University of Miami on a theater scholarship. But after only a couple of months there, he decided to hell with this, and he moved to New York City to actually continue his studies and begin working and earning money. And not too long after he got to New York City, he was on Broadway. He took over the role of Eugene Grant from Anthony Perkins in a Broadway production of Look Homeward Angel. And soon after that, he ended up getting signed by MCA, the talent agency, which also, incidentally, ran Universal Studios. So he found himself uh, working quite a bit and moving to L.A. eventually. And over the next 50 years, incidentally, he's still working now, Great. So 50 plus years. Hurrah. He's had a great career. Meanwhile, back at Spawn Ranch. <laughs> this is <that's> funny. <laughs> it is kind of uh, And uh, you know, that's a funny story too, Charlie Manson. <laughs> is Charlie Manson and, a funny story? Really? <laughs> no, no, no. Not, not so much Charlie. Uh, Charlie now is a funny story. Charlie then, not so sure. funny. No. Um, no, I was going to say, uh, Andrew <laughs> Prine used to ride his uh, motorcycles on the dunes near Spawn Ranch. So he actually sure. knew Charlie Manson and he knew the cult members. He was sure. familiar with them. His hairdresser for a time was Jay Sebring, who nice. ended up being one of the victims of the Manson cult. Unfortunately, yes. He was also good friends with Sharon Tate, who was another, another unfortunate. unfortunate victim. Sure. He had stock in Folgers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. Terrible. Yeah. Here's a great location, uh, which just happened to, they happened to find. It was really good timing. This is Topanga Canyon. and there Which had, also has Manson ties, by the way. Also does, that's right. right. But this canyon had been, had a recent fire. It's very dry in Southern California, very, very dry. And the fire had wiped out this entire area and they found it and said, wow, this is just a great location for the finale of our it's, film. It's like death, isn't it? It's... Uh, it reminds me of the end of the Roger Corman movie, The Fall of the House of Usher, which of also used a, an area of Topanga Canyon mm-hmm. that had been burnt away. Now, this was, of course, 14 I years before this. I made this connection, but sure, yeah, mm-hmm. I see it. Now, this great is, ending to a great movie, by the way. Very, just, yeah. So, yeah. This, is a, a, this is where the tables turn, and boy, is this rewarding. This is really great. So... Damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? He asks her, will you have sex with me? And she says, yes. Wrong answer. Like, what's the right answer mm-hmm. there, right? So this escape sequence, the entirety of this scene is just so phenomenal because of how athletic both Tiffany Bowling and Andrew Prine are. They're so good here. And it's believable. She's a baller. It, it's, Shot um, caller. It raises the level of, of, uh, of violence, I guess, just because of how good they are at moving around here. There's a frenetic quality to the way that Andrew Prine runs. Oh, there go the glasses. Great scene. 
And yet the saddle shoes, they're kind of clean. <laughs> Are they still clean? <laughs> I'm guessing. It'd be great if they had someone polishing them every take. Like, or him to... Make them clean. Have make him, them clean. He could, he could stop and polish sure. them himself. Yep. Oh, there's the knife. Oh, this is yeah. great. So Tiffany has said in the years since the making of this film that this entire ending and the fact that she gets so amped up and lets out that primal scream as she's about to plunge the knife. Says, don't sleep with me she, ever. She says that that was really for her a release of all of those pent-up frustrations at how she right. had been relegated to See, working in, up? in yeah. films that she felt were beneath her, like she felt this film hmm. was beneath her at the time. Didn't stop her from taking the paycheck or doing really well in her part. No, but not so much. The savagery, though, of her yeah. as she just repeatedly stabs him. This isn't about escape anymore. This is about revenge yeah. for her. And I think it's a brilliant ending. Some great shots. It's bleak. <laughs> that it is. But one always looks for a cathartic comeuppance at the end of a film like this, and it's always nice to have one, especially as well executed as Are this. Are you saying a feel-good ending? A feel-good ending, if you will. Like, like mm. E.T., maybe? <laughs> it's been our pleasure maybe, to maybe bring you the, yeah. the Centerfold Girls, folks. We are Matt and Jason, collectively known as Terror Transmission. Indeed. Thanks for listening, and hope you enjoyed. Thank you. <laughs>